Amber Love, and you are listening to another episode of Vodka O'Clock. Don't forget that you can pick up the Farrah Weathers Mystery Series on places like Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and that would be the first two books, Cardiac Arrest and Full Body Manslaughter. But keep your eyes out because book three is on its way sometime this year. You can support the show and my work at patreon.com slash amberunmasked. The uh, show is, of course, streamed on iTunes and Stitcher, but if you're looking for some older episodes, you have to get them on the website, amberunmasked.com. So joining me today, uh, an old friend that I uh, I haven't talked to in a little while. So Jeremy Holt is back, and we're going to start talking about his writing processes and just how he's doing and adjusting to, um, you know, after enough years of experience, see what's changed. So Jeremy, welcome back. Thanks for having me, and congrats on the books. That's awesome. Thanks. So, um, yeah, I mean, we we talked, you know, obviously we started talking way back when, um, you know, and there would be a comic out here and there and uh, a lot of real indie stuff. So then as the years have gone on and we've stayed in touch, and, of course, I'm following all your feeds, it's like, you know, all these new projects come up, and sometimes projects come up and go away. That's part of the industry. But, um, you know, you've got a novel that you're working on and some other comics that you're working on. So I just wanted to do like a, a state of Jeremy address here. What's <laughs> <laughs> what's going on? Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think the last time I was on. It might have been maybe uh, a year and a half to two years ago. I think I was talking about my Monkey Brain series Art Monster. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, let's see. Since then... Um, uh, yeah, I've, I've still been writing and uh, pitching projects and uh, pitching to editors and <clears throat> working with new artists and all of that. Um, but uh, yeah, Monkey Brain was a great experience. Um, they have since closed. Uh, so they were probably, I think, um, late last year, they were kind of um, reverting rights back to creators and and thanking everybody for, you know, their participation and uh, making, you know, the publisher what it was. But I think it was just too much of a burden for uh, Chris and Allison to, to keep going. Um, but it was really great. I mean, I finished, I did two series there. I did Art Monster, which uh, was so close to being done, but the artist had to take other work. Um, but the other book I did was this book called Skinned uh, with my co-writer, Tim Daniel, and and uh, super talented artist Josh Gowdy and we actually finished that series. Uh, that was a six part series. Um, and I can say that we have found a print publisher because Monkey Brain was a digital only publisher, but we have found relatively recently a print publisher for it. So uh, there'll be more official news about that later in the year. Um, but that's exciting. That's good. Uh, yeah, and it was cool because uh, I ju- I just got back from Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle. And I got to kind of hang out with Chris Roberson, one of the uh, founders of Monkey Brain, and um, got to hang out with some other creators who also did books at Monkey Brain. And, and Chris was really happy to see that, you know, we had done our books with him and that, you know, the whole point of it was to, you know, find a place to kind of get yourself off the ground with, you know, a digital book. Um, and then hopefully that would open up doors, which, you know, it has for a lot of the creators. So Chris was pretty happy to see yeah. that his plan kind of worked. And they had such a great reputation just as wonderful people. Um, And now it's really exciting. You get to see Chris's name in the iZombie credits. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's like, it's so exciting. Um, You know, as one of the co-creators. But yeah, yeah, just follow, you know, following them on Twitter and other people I've talked to, like Paul Aller. I mean, they had great experiences with Monkey Brain. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. Actually, I I met... um, and, you know, I really liked all of the titles they did. Uh, you know, High Crimes was one of my favorites, uh, which went on to, you know, win an Eisner and all that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I actually met Chris the first time I met him was last Emerald City last year. And it was funny because, you know, I introduced myself and he's like, oh, you know, nice to meet you. You know, what do you what do you write? And I said, Oh, Art Monster and Skin. He's like, oh, my God, I publish you. I am so sorry. <laughs> like, no, it's okay. You know, putting face to a name kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it was cool to, you know, when I saw him this year, you know, he remembered who I was, and we you know, had a couple couple nights of just hanging out talking. So it was nice. 
That's good. And then um, you've, uh, you know, I've always known you as doing the, the indie creator-owned work. So have you ventured into the IP area? It's a great question. I have been trying. Um, I prob- uh, The last time I was on, I think I had already done that. Done. I did a very brief 10-page uh, work for hire thing for Dynamite for their Pathfinder series, which is, you know, kind of D&D uh, fantasy stuff. Um, so it was, that was fun. Um, but it's been pretty difficult to get work for hire. I mean, I know enough editors at all of the publishers and they've been very gracious to, you know, invite me to just check in with them regarding work for hire. But I kind of get the sense that most of them kind of have their like favorites that they go to first. Um, yeah, that's all, you know, you can see the same names over and over again. Yeah. And that's the nature of the beast and and it's fine. But I, I have realized that I'd I'd like to kind of beef up my resume and try to get some more work for her just because I think it would be a, a good experience. Um, and to kind of get out of my own head and work with somebody else's creations. I think that would be pretty fun. Yeah. It's a completely different kind of challenge. You know, it's like, you know, you have to you have to answer to to somebody for for different kinds of things instead of you know just answering to your audience or your publisher. Yeah, and I've been kind of thinking about like what titles I would want to write, and to be honest, I don't really know. I, I'd be willing to just about write anything. Um, and I, I I've talked to friends who've kind of either been pitched by a publisher like, oh, do you want to you know write Transformers? And they're like, no, I have no interest in Transformers. Yeah. Um, or others are like, I know nothing about it, but I'm going to do it anyway because, you know, it's getting my foot in the door and all that. So Right. Well, um, yeah, that, that <laughs> it's just funny because um, IDW partners with Hasbro. Yep. So I know that's one of the, the big areas, but obviously like Dynamite has, has things too and um, Dark Horse does. Um, but it's just... Well, and Boom is really, of course, taking, you know, yeah, taking yeah. those franchises and doing well. Um, <clears throat> but the, you know, thinking about uh, opportunities, there's the last year, I think, was the first time I saw the the DC creator contests where mm-hmm. they uh, they had like art, um, art portfolios and also writers do this like tryout in order to get into some kind of program yep and it basically like was some kind of guarantee or or you know better chance of you working on on something even if it was a one shot um and it just seemed like i first of all i read through the descriptions and i'm like it says that you can't have been published before does that mean indie does that mean creator owned and you know grassroots stuff uh no no uh the so they've done two classes. I guess they call them classes. So the first class uh, was uh, two years ago. The most recent class was last year. So a friend of mine, uh, the very talented writer uh, Ryan K. Lindsay. Ryan Lindsay. Yeah, I, I yeah. thought that was the one that that came to mind. I was like, but Ryan won it. <laughs> yeah, and he's and he's done. He had already done. You know, he had books out through Dark Horse and IDW. So, um, yeah, he he told me that you know they've kind of had to get. Uh, they've had to improvise a little bit as far as what they were planning to do with the, the people who got in. Because uh, from what I understood when I first read the description, it was like a a multi-process thing where the you know the people that get picked write and go to, and do these online classes with you know the top tier talent at DC, and then from there they would get a smaller group would get picked to then fly out to Burbank to meet with people in person, but I think that they had to kind of condense it and they kind of skipped that step. Um, so I don't really know what this year is going to be like. A, a couple friends were reminding me about it because they're like, you should just apply. And I, I applied last year and I didn't get in. So I was like, yeah, I might. I mean, uh, you know, it can't hurt, I suppose. But it seems like, I mean, Ryan had a lot of great things to say about it. I saw him over the weekend and he, he really enjoyed it. Yeah, I was really happy that he was, you know, uh, of all of the people that were listed, he was the only name that I had recognized. And um, 
And I just remember, I guess, the day that rejections went out or something, it, it seemed like my feed was filled with you know, <laughs> all of these people saying, nope, didn't get in, nope, rejected. And I was probably one of the, no, I was definitely yeah, one of those. Yeah, you, you know, I think maybe Brandon Barrows or somebody. Like, you know, it was like, it, it was just all these familiar names. And I'm like, these guys, you know, I just have this, I don't know, like I revere my friends and I'm just like, oh, they write better than I do, and they didn't get in. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so I didn't even try because, I, like I said, I just didn't think there was a chance. You never know. I mean, I, I'm not really sure what they were looking for exactly. I, I really – I thought they were looking for diversity, um, which is something I was very uh, clear about as far as my background being Asian American and, you know, growing up all over, all over the world and, you know, identity is something that I've I've – uh, wrestled with my entire life. I'm also a triplet. So there's all these facets to my life that I th- I think I'd be, you know, a interesting person to take on because I, I have some unique experiences. And, you know, of all their titles, the one, it seems like the one theme in most of them is identity, whether it's a concealed identity or, mm-hmm. or, or when they were, you know, in public. Um, so, yeah, so I guess they, they weren't really going for diversity because I don't think there were a lot of diverse as far as people of color, I don't think there were as many as I was hoping. There might but, have been at least more women, which was, you know, a, sure, a big sure. deal for DC. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, a lot of them, like, I, I was surprised that maybe a quarter of them were already established TV writers. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, that's kind of... Yeah, I thought that was very strange. That's what I meant. Like, to me, I thought it was supposed to be, you know, newcomers. Yeah, but I guess those are newcomers to comics, so... I, I guess. And it, <laughs> I know it's one of those things that um, I, I feel the frustration myself and then I see it in other people when a, a book is announced and it's some big famous novelist yeah. or columnist, somebody, somebody writing, um, because then, first of all, they overshadow the, uh, the artwork. Um, and people who have been trying to break in specifically to comics because of their love of comics feel like they've been shorted, you know, like they weren't even considered. Um, but yet you, you know that those books are, you know, like Black Panther, you know, that's flying off the shelf. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, I, it's just one of those things where it's hard. It's like, well, they, they got the book to be successful I mean, because it could have been somebody else. It could have, like, Alan Heinberg tried to write Wonder Woman, and you know, it didn't sell. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't always work. And then there's issues like Chelsea Kane, who like, right, right. discovered that comics was too toxic and couldn't wait to get <laughs> out. Um, you know, so it's it's just an odd thing. Like, have you have you had those feelings too, where you're like? Well, I suppose if I were a TV writer, I suppose if I were a bestseller. <laughs> um, that's a good question. I think uh, there's an issue I've had personally that I think I've kind of uh, gradually gotten over. Um, but for a while, when I was pretty new to the industry, um, you know, I... I rarely get included in the whole person of color conversation that happens in comics pretty regularly. Um, if you haven't met me, uh, you know, you, my name is just another white guy, Jeremy Holt. Um, and you know, you might see me on Twitter and my, you know, my avatar is obviously of me, but it's not really the same. And like, so it took many years of just meeting editors. So, and knowing that they remembered me. So when I submit something, it wasn't, Oh, it's just another white guy writing comics. Um, but I know a lot of, um, I think a lot of reviewers and, 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 uh, whatnot have, uh, have kind of viewed my work that way. Um, at least I read it in some reviews, but I think that's gradually gone away as I've kind of just met people in person and I've met some people at, at CBR and Newsarama and, and, uh, Multiversity where I used to write a column for them. And, and so like, it's definitely gone away, but now the other problem on that, it part of it's my fault as well because I'm adopted. So even though I'm I'm Asian, I, I was raised, you know, by white people basically, and I kind of view myself as white. So I don't really ever write these overt Asian stories, which um, 
you know, can kind of help one stand out. Uh, I do write about race and identity and it's a kind of an ongoing theme in all of my stories, but I don't do it in, in the way that I've seen other Asian creators do it. Um, you do it with monsters. I do it with monsters and I, and I use, I do use people of color occasionally in my stories. And uh, I will say most of them, most of the protagonists in my story are white, which is something I've been very conscious of. Uh, I'd say in the last year that I've been trying to focus on stories with non-white protagonists, um, which has been really interesting and, and kind of fun and, and a really good challenge. Um, but like I said, it was something that I kind of struggled with early on, but you know, I'm now kind of eight plus years into all of this and I, it doesn't really bother me that much anymore. Well, it's interesting because I didn't know that Greg Pak was Asian either until I, oh. I saw him on a panel and, and it was, um, you know, like some kind of, uh, creators of color or something panel um, mm -hmm. or diverse comics panel or something like that. And I, first of all, I had been mispronouncing his name forever. Um, cause I thought it was Pac. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's common. And, um, you know, so it, it was just one of those things where even though I had seen him, I didn't even know. He was <laughs> oh. <Asian. laughs> um, so it's, uh, you know, it's sometimes I guess these are, you know, identities are, are not as obvious. And especially like now with uh, more voices coming from the transgender community, especially mm -hmm. um, in in some of the comics publishers that are, you know, taking taking the risk and taking on people who would have otherwise been rejected by, by big publishers. Um, you know, they're seeing that that identity is something people like to talk about. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, uh, I like that, that these conversations, um, about identity as far as creators themselves, uh, is really great. And it's, it, uh, it just makes it feel much more inclusive than it, than it did maybe when I was starting out, uh, back like 2008 or whatever. Um, so yeah. Yeah. There've been some big changes. So, um, I, you know, it's just interesting, like even seeing the, you know, some of the lineups of new books coming out this year. And it's like you are seeing more characters of color. And even in the movies, obviously, like the Black Panther movie is going to be coming out. Sure. Um, they're working, I guess, really hard on, on keeping that cast, like, authentic. And mm -hmm. um, because there are so many missteps, like the... Um, whitewashing of Asian characters, like I guess Ghost in the Shell is one of those hotly debated ones. I really I don't know the story. I don't know anything about it. Um, but obviously Scarlett Johansson is not Asian. Um, yeah, I you know honestly I I, I kind of looked into that um, to a certain degree because I was kind of I had my initial reaction to it, and then the more I, I looked into it, you know it's it's become somewhat clear to me and, and I could be wrong, but um, anime in general, uh, from a Japanese perspective, uh, Asian women have kind of always been drawn slightly more Caucasian. It's just part of the culture. Um, so I read somewhere that, uh, you know, the Asian audience, Japanese audience was actually very excited by the casting in general. Um, cause it's kind of what they had, they were kind of, they saw in the character. Um, but then I, you know, I see other things like Emma Stone being cast as a semi-Asian character. And that, that bothers me more because it's like, I can't suspend disbelief there. That's just kind of absurd. Yeah, I think that one was really, really far-fetched. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, like my understanding of Ghost in the Shell is I think they were changing the character. Like, that's what I thought. I thought that was mm -hmm. what was going to come out was they were actually just doing a white. American version. Oh, I see. I don't, but then we started seeing the makeup and it looked like her eyes were, um, sort of pulled back and, um, so. yeah. And this is, this is another prime example of like, I want to feel a connection like, or, or kind of an allegiance to one or the other, but because I'm, I'm, uh, culturally mixed, I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't get immediately upset when I first heard it because, mm -hmm. you know, I dealt with this identity crisis of like, 
I look in the mirror, I know I'm Asian, but I don't see an Asian person. That's kind of how it's always been. And like growing up, I had, you know, I got to grow up with biological siblings, which is obviously rare for an adoptee. But, you know, uh, I lived in cultures where, you know, race wasn't really a topic like living overseas. You know, it's just about, you know, what are your interests? Like, what do you like? Um, not, you know, oh, you're not from where we're from, so we're not going to talk to you. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of wrestle with that a lot. And I, I do think maybe, you, you know, you you had the obviously, like you said, you, you had the fortune of having your brothers with you because obviously that doesn't happen. I mean, right now, look at the immigration problems that they're, they're talking about pulling children away from their parents. And, oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, you probably had a great comfort, you know, with with two brothers. Yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting to have. have I mean, it's have triplets. Triple brothers. So I, I mean, <laughs> well, like so my my brothers, uh, Chris and Justin, are, are I would say for most of our lives, they've always been closer. I've always kind of distanced myself. Um, and the artsy farsy one, right? No, I mean, my brother Justin works in visual effects. He's working on the new Spider-Man Homecoming as a lead texture painter. I mean, oh, he's just, okay. Yeah, so he worked on Watchmen. He worked on Suicide Squad. I mean, he's got a huge, crazy, awesome resume. Um, but what I found out, and this, just to make a long story short, so uh, my brother Chris saw this documentary called Twinsters, which is, if you don't know what it's about, it's two Korean girls who get separated at birth. One moves to L.A. or is adopted and goes to L.A. The other is adopted and, and goes to France. Uh, Paris and uh, the one in Ellie becomes kind of an actress and she is in a, a low budget movie that kind of makes its rounds on YouTube and naturally her identical twin sister starts hearing about hey did you see that movie like you're in it and she's like shut up no I'm not and then she watched it and she's like oh my god I am in it who is that and then because of the internet they connected so the sister in LA decided to document the journey of going to meet her identical sister for the first time. Um, so it was amazing. It was a really well done documentary. And my brother Chris saw it and was completely moved by it. Like he saw it by himself because he, he owns a CrossFit gym down in Miami and he has like afternoons free. He can just go do whatever because he owns a, his own business. And he went to go see the movie, went to go to have lunch and sat in a restaurant and cried. <laughs> and this is a big, like, he looks like a superhero. He's covered in tattoos and piercings and, and he just kind of bald because he realized he's kind of always wanted to know where our parents are. Um, so he did a bunch of digging and, and learned a lot about our history that we didn't really know. And like one being that when we were uh, sent to live with a foster family our, for our first year of life, uh, they couldn't place three infants at the, at the same place. So I actually lived for the first year of my my life by myself and they were together uh which explains a lot that i've always distanced myself from them that does. For the last... i mean who would have you know a lot of people don't don't believe that children can have those emotions at that age but yeah yeah it's... and it goes it goes way back and um it does and you know that's something i i've i've been thinking a lot about and i'm actually developing a, a project thinking about my experiences as being an adoptee and, and, and identity in a very clear sense of the word. Um, so, so yeah. It's fascinating because there was a story. Um, I, I don't think it's the same two girls that you're talking about. Um, but they were, um, I think it was on good morning America one day, a really mm -hmm. similar thing where, uh, you know, people because of the internet and pictures floating around somehow it just got from one to the other that hey you've got a doppelganger out there and she's like what are you talking about and uh, they did a dna test and it 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 turned out that they were related yeah that's it's crazy. Like, yeah it's like that it's like so you know spooky but yeah i, I it's one of those things where i just love I mean, I'm fascinated by it. I love talking about identities and who we are and what makes us, you know, it, if you're in, how much your environment shapes you. And mainly because, like, you know, we're living in an era of what, you know, 
basically pure evil with run by supervillains. And, <laughs> you know, it makes me wonder, like, you know, hey, if you had had, you know, parents who were, you know, maybe uh, didn't spoil you, but, you know, maybe if you were poor, but they loved you better, like, maybe sure. you wouldn't be going through this. Sure. Um, yeah, I would I would agree with that. And, yeah, I, I do think about it a lot on, uh, you know, how much is imprinted on me uh, from my parents and, and what, you know, is just inherent in my uh, DNA makeup from the, the ones that I've never known, you know. Is any of this uh, working its way into the book that you're writing? Um, no, not so much, actually. Because, I, I mean, the last time, I remember we talked about Houdini. Yep. Um, which I find fascinating. And there's um, a couple of fictional shows and documentary type shows and stuff that have been on. Uh, did, did you see uh, Houdini and Doyle? Loved it. Yeah? So upset that that got canceled. You know, I I'm not I got really say upset. I liked it. I, I the, the only thing I got upset about was the Doyle part about his um like family. I didn't like Houdini's speech. He used too many colloquialisms that it just pulled me out of the moment. I'm like It's really modernish, I guess. Yeah, is. which it 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 could have been something very easily remedied if if because it's like, well, which is it? Is it is it a modern telling, or, or is he really living at the turn of the century? And it was clearly the turn of the century. But I mean, other than that, I thought it was, I thought it had potential. I loved uh, those actors so much, though. Like, yeah. I mean, I since that guy like had uh, Michael Wesson, since he's you know made like little bit appearances on silly sitcoms and stuff, and then he was mm. on House for you know a couple episodes, and uh, you know I get really excited when I see him because I'm like, <laughs> I love this guy. Yeah, it's funny because there there were a lot of parallels to that show that that are in After Houdini because there's a there's a female police officer in my story. There's uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is in my story, but but it plays a very different role in mine. So I was concerned because uh, I actually placed After Houdini with a publisher. Uh, can't really give more details on that, but I will say that it's coming out um, spring of next year. But okay. Um, I talked to my editor and, and he was like, no, this is good for us. I mean, if that show does well, that just is going to be a great spotlight for, for what we're doing with you. And I was like, oh, I like that kind of perspective. That's that's great. Um, well, even without that show in, in particular, there are um, there's other magician type shows that are on. Yes. You know, yes. Um, which. Uh, well, I, I know that there's, I think one is a documentary on Netflix where it's like a group of illusionists all kind of like talking, talking the shop. Oh, yeah. But um, but then there's the sh a show called Magicians, which is more fantasy based. Right, right. Yep. Um, but I just, I've always loved the, the things like that, you know, Houdini inspired so many people, like the mentalist. I mean, oh sure. my God, I loved The Mentalist, and um, there were there have been plenty of shows like Leverage. They're always doing pickpockety things and right, you know, right. picking locks and um, just the the tragedy of, of how I don't know of just Houdini's training the the control and stuff that he did to just try and train it every single day and how he ended up dying is just so sad yeah and you know it you know i think about when i was writing houdini and i'm still still right revising some of it but um doing the research and just thinking about you know i think a lot about the time before the internet and what you had to do to become famous um which really you had to be you had to do something outstanding because if People didn't talk about it. There's no way people people who don't know who you are are going to come see you, you know. And this can go as this doesn't have to go all the way back to the turn of the century. I mean, we could be like uh, thirty years you know, ago. <laughs> yeah, like like the early '90s, like before there was the. I remember the time before the internet. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it was like newspapers and TV coverage, and that was. Yeah, yeah. And I, I work at a middle school as a day job. I do tech support. And so I'm around, you know, 11, 12, 13 year olds all day long. And like some of them, 
obviously you have no idea what it was like before the internet. And, um, you know, I, I was talking to one of them about, um, well, I, I was asked by the English teachers to, uh, for about three weeks, um, teach a kind of a small in-class session on how to make a comic book. Um, so they were kind of tasked with, I showed them the bare basics on how to make a one page comic, but they were using pre-existing, pre-existing narrative, like a, you know, Humpty Dumpty or, you know, three little pigs or whatever, but to retell it through a different medium. Um, and you know, a couple, a bunch of kids did like, you know, stop animation. Some did, you know, a painting and a bunch wanted to do a comic book. So, uh, but talking to them and, you know, telling them like, you guys don't understand, like when I was growing up, we didn't, we couldn't just find everything on the computer. We like, if I wanted to find a song, for example, that I, re- I heard on the radio, I, there was a good chance I was never going to hear that song again. Or, you know, I would just have to wait until it just happened to be on the radio while I was listening to the radio. And then you hit record and then you, you hit record. Yeah. Or then yeah. You, you go to the record store and you sing a couple lines to the guy <laughs> and they yeah. find it for you. I've yeah. done that so many times. Yeah. Cause I remember, I remember when I first put, the Shazam on my phone. I was like, yeah, isn't really a miracle? Amazing time. Um, but like, so to, to kind of answer your question about the, the novel. Um, so the, the novel I'm writing is an adaptation of one of my comics and it, it deals with, uh, music as a form of time travel. And it's set in the, it jumps between the early nineties and, uh, present day. Um, but doing the research for, for the comic and subsequent research I've done for the novel, you know, the, the band that I feature in this story is very much Nirvana. It's just a fictionalized version of the band Nirvana. And, um, you know, the fact that they broke the number one spot in, uh, January of 1991 and knocked Michael Jackson's dangerous off the number one spot. That was a big deal because I mean, First of all, the grunge rock explosion of the late 80s, early 90s was a thing of it in and of itself. But to make those that many sales in in record deal or record sales and to have them skyrocket to the top, you had to physically go to a store and buy their album. There was no downloading it. There was no iTunes. There was none of that. People had to physically go into shops and buy them. And the fact that there were, you know, they were selling 400,000 copies a month. Um, by the you know late 1990 um, is a testament to like they did something legit legitimately awesome just like Houdini did something legitimately awesome to put himself on the map um, and now it, I think it changed the internet has changed that because people become famous over nothing really um, oh, yeah well I mean some people just get famous for being stupid I yeah mean, and it's, it's, There was something about Instagram, like there's some girl who, I don't know, like dropped out of high school or something. And she apparently, you know, apparently her, her, I'm not saying that you can only learn through school because there are plenty of ways to learn, but apparently she like just sounds like an idiot (laughs) and she's like Instagram famous. Well, yeah. And that's, and that's the thing. Instagram famous. Like what, what, what do you, I mean, yeah, you've got like 40,000 or 400,000 followers on Instagram, but like what are you, what are you creating? What are you, what are you doing other than being youthful? Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I was talking about this with a friend about, you know, the music, the trajectory of like something like the electric guitar, the electric guitar has had an amazing, fascinating history. I've read a lot about it. Um, you know, the early starts of, of the guitar, you know, around the time that, you know, Houdini was alive. Um, there were, there were a couple key moments that happened. So George Beecham was the, the originator of the first electric guitar. And it was because of a cousin's husband who happened to be a millionaire, but at the time, not really a millionaire, super rich, fell into money. But if it wasn't for his cousin's husband who fell into some money at a very early age, we probably wouldn't have a guitar because that cousin's husband wouldn't have funded George Beecham's company. Um, and that, that cousin went on to blow all of his money within a few years. And he was basically penniless and homeless. You know, he fell into the money at 19. He was basically homeless and, and broke by 24. So he really blew through his inheritance. Um, but if, if it wasn't for him, we might not have the electric car. And if we didn't have the electric guitar, we wouldn't have all this amazing music over the last century. Um, and yeah, I, it, it's just, it's, 
kind of amazing that, you know, people had to kind of create something and now you don't. So, so talking about the, from the music standpoint, um, you know, there's been waves of major influential musicians, you know, like Chuck Berry, the Beatles, Stones, you know, uh, Eric Clapton, you know, so on and so forth. And I was talking to a friend about it, you know, so the grunge rock explosion was the, was a major movement in the early nineties. There hasn't really been anything like that since. And I was asking my friend, like, what do you think the next wave is going to be? What is that music going to sound like? And he was like, music's dead because of the internet. There's not going to be anything like that. Uh, everything is, you know, available now, uh, you know, and you as the listener have to find it. It's not them finding an audience, you know, um, which is kind of makes me sad because <laughs> it is. I, don't know. I think I guess then um, I guess like emo rock would have been like the first new generation of, you know, the, the digital music yeah. scene, um, well, you know, bands with, you know, really crazy names and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, Hey, I liked them panic at the disco, but um, <laughs> come on. Some of these bands have like really, really stupid names. Um, and it's like, I don't know, like they, they all sound the same. <laughs> yeah. And, I and mean, I feel like such an old fart like that. Like I can, you know, I can remember like, you know, clearly there's a difference between Iron Maiden and Metallica. And, and, <laughs> and you know, like, you know, my parents, like, they sound exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I do feel some of the music, like, and I think this is normal for any generations. Like, as you get older, the music kind of, your taste, it, it, you know, if you cultivate your taste, it, it grows and it changes. And, and you know, the newer stuff sounds, you know, less interesting. Um, but you know, I, I'm happy to constantly be looking for music and always have something new to find. Um, and I was, you know, honestly a little too young to remember, you know, uh, Nirvana specifically. Like I was 91, I was like not even 10 years old. So I, I kind of missed out, you know, seeing them and, and experiencing that firsthand, but I've See, I was there. I was there. I was in college, and yeah, you know, you know, I was I was just starting to um, work at the college radio station, and I hated them. What? It was like not. <laughs> I was an old fart at a young age. I liked That's Michael Bolton. Funny. I oh liked my Minji. god! What are you serious? You bet. I was an old person. That's amazing. It was, and I and they used to pick on me all the time. And I'm like, I don't care. Pick up with me all you want. You know, I'm like, I'm going to play the music I want to play. And um, I was also the only one to run a country show on that station. And uh, it was, you know, and I just got made fun of. And it's like, you know, I and it's not that I didn't listen to anything else. Like, I mean, I, you know, it's just such a, my, you know, a music catalog that's so diverse. Like, you know. Hey, maybe sometimes I'm in the mood for Sarah McLaughlin. Maybe sometimes I'm in the mood for Melissa Etheridge. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Sometimes you got to rock the Enya. I totally get it. I listen. Uh, then that's the shit I listen to like all day long. <laughs> I am not <laughs> kidding. I put I put on the sound channel, the Soundscapes channel. Yeah. And I just run that all day long. That's funny. I, I've since working on on the the comic called Skip to the End. Uh, you know, I was developing that three years ago, and I. I've spent the last few years working on it and um, I've not going to lie. I've become completely obsessed with, with, with Nirvana, but more specifically with the whole, um, that whole time period. Uh, And I just, I think, I think about just being a young adult in that, that those, those years of like 1989 to 1994 and how I wish I could like, so over the weekend, I was in Seattle for Emerald City, and I ended up uh, going to the what used to be known as the uh, EMP Museum, the Experience Music Project, which has since changed names to the Museum of Pop Culture because they're rebranding and they're opening multiple locations, so it's less about music and more about everything um, poppy. And but they have a a Nirvana exhibit, which has been up for many many years, and it's it's the quintessential Nirvana exhibit. It's the only one that exists, and. So I knew, I found out very late that the show is going, the exhibit's going down next weekend. So I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be in Seattle 
a week before this thing closes, I, I have to sneak away from the convention and go see it. And I've already seen it. And I was like, I have to go do it again. So I went and it was really lovely to be there and, and see all the memorabilia and all that. Um, and then I decided to take a ride out to uh, Veretta Park, which is where Cobain lived. Um, and I went to 171 Lake Washington Boulevard East, which is where his mansion is. And um, I wanted to just stand there. Uh, the, the house is boarded up. Uh, they've ripped down the number, so it's completely unmarked. But after some searching, you can kind of find it. But adjacent to the house, there's a little grassy knoll and there's a, a park bench in it. And it's kind of become the the memorial. Um, and, you know, people have left Sharpies for, for passerbys to write on it. There's flowers. There's So, you know, I wrote a little note on it and, and I just stood there and hung out in the park for about an hour just to kind of get my bearings and feel what it what it was like to just stand in that space uh because i do write about that specific location uh in the novel so i wanted to kind of you know kind of from the driveway just look out and you're right on the water it's like you know two-lane road and then you hit water so it, it was a really beautiful view um but yeah it was nice to kind of get away from the craziness of the con and, and do something kind of on my own and it's work related and yeah, totally. Yeah, totally work-related. But yeah, that reminds me of, you know, the people that um, all converged onto Paisley Park. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which I guess they're turning into some kind of museum. Um, oh, cool. Or at least opening up some part of it. And apparently, you know, they they found all this, un, you know, unreleased music from Prince that they're, you know, they're considering putting out and stuff like that. Sure. Well, I'm sure there's... They're going to be tied up in legal matters oh, yeah. for a really long time, figuring out who owns things. But, um, yeah, so at some point, um, the fans will sort of maybe get that opportunity. But they were all, you know, obviously, like, at that fence and leaving all of the flowers and balloons. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, you know, it was just interesting how last year we lost so many people that were so notable and yeah yeah I mean, obviously we lose people all the time but it was like you just don't expect the the big impact people like that to be in the same year right you know and uh like david bowie and prince at the same time and, and george michael george michael yeah oh yeah i did love george michael <laughs> yeah so this so do you have a title for this book uh it's gonna be the same title uh skip to the end um so the book has taken on a completely different um, a completely different avenue than the comic because the comic is is a, essentially a four issue miniseries, eighty eight pages of story. Um, so there's you know the, I had to econom, economize what I was going to tell, but um, almost immediately I'd say by like the tenth page of the the novel, um, the story opens up in a way that I couldn't even touch upon in, in the comics. So almost right away, there, there are a lot of characters that don't even, don't even show up in the comic that are, play major roles in the novel. And, um, yeah, I, I, I started writing the novel because I managed to acquire a literary agent early last year and he, uh, has been awesome. Um, and he, you know, was willing to represent me with my comic book work, not so much pitching me, pitching stuff on my behalf, but like looking over contracts and whatnot, making sure I'm not getting screwed. Um, but he did say, you know, if you have, if you have it in you to write a, a novel, he's like, that's the, the arena I most often play within. So I could, you know, definitely help you there. So I was like, wow, you know, this is a great opportunity. I shouldn't pass it up. And honestly, the only story on the tip of my brain I wanted to write was skip to the end because I loved writing the comic and I was still so obsessed. I am still so obsessed with that time period that, uh, it just seemed like a no brainer to just keep doing the research and, you know, expand the story, expand the universe. So how did, how did you meet this agent? Um, I met the my agent through a mutual friend, a creator who's also represented by him. Okay. Um, and I was. Like you were sitting in a Starbucks. And no, you no. Your laptop. Somebody walked up to you. No, no. I, I was. Um, I was. I was kind of in in uh, the process of signing contracts with a publisher, and I was really on the fence about it, and I didn't really know where to turn. 
Um, and my, my friend was like, look, uh, I've been in that situation. Uh, maybe my agent can help you out. I can't guarantee he'll, rep- he'll represent you, but just here's his email and I've, I can make introductions and just see, see what happens. I was like, okay. So, you know, I got the introduction and then I, you know, my agent was like, send me all your work published, non-published, not published, and, and we'll take it from there. Um, and yeah, it took him, you know, several months to sift through all of it. I sent him maybe like 10, maybe 12 projects. And, um, he was like, yeah, you know, he's like, you have a lot of potential. I'm, I'm going to, I'll take you on. So, um, and that was that. So he has kind of been helping, uh, guide me through a series of pitfalls that I probably would have made, uh, without him, uh, regarding contracts with upcoming projects. That's good. Cause I know there's obviously several books out there, uh, you know, to help, uh, specifically like comics people, because, you know, they tend to not have the, the advances and, you know, and stuff like that, that novelists might sure. get, but, um, you know, like Joe Sergi's book about comics law and copyright and, you know, there's so much out there to know. Well, that's the thing is like, where, where, were any of us supposed to learn this? You know, it's like, you're you not. know, it's like, you're not. Here's, a, here's a book. It's like, here's a, you know, and it's like, and you're trying to read like this legal stuff. And yeah, I mean, to me, it may as well be math. Right. I've, I've, I've read through some of my contracts with pre- previous books and I thought I understood it. Like I even, you know, I have, I have a lot of lawyers on, on my mom's side of the family. None of them are IP lawyers per se. And I have some friends that are lawyers and I've, I've asked for advice and, and some of them have, been kind enough to read it, read some of the contracts. And like, you know, IP is very different. Like the way these contracts are written, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, it's like math to me. And I'm, I'm a terrible Asian. I'm terrible at math. And it's just like, I was like, I thought I, I know I read that sentence like seven times, but you're saying it doesn't mean what I thought it meant. And they're like, no, no, not at all. Um, so it is kind of like, you know, that's something that nobody tells you when they're like, how do you break into comics? It's like, well, first of all, there's no really breaking. You just keep making them. That's it. Exactly. There's no breaking. There's just making. But there's this whole other dimension to it of, you know, how to prevent yourself from getting caught up into something that you can't get out of. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you just kind of have to learn trial by fire. Yeah. Alex DeCampi gives great lectures about this. Oh, I love I love when. Yeah. I love, I'll, I'll, I could just listen to her talk all day. It's, it's amazing. Awesome. I have, uh, she was on a panel with a bunch of other people. Um, I, I believe it was one of the New York shows. I have that. It's in, you know, it's in the archives of the podcast. Nice. Um, and, you know, she, they talk about money and they talk about all the stuff that you should know. And she talks about like the worst deals that she ever signed. <laughs> and, and it's just. For whatever reason, I found that women were willing to talk about this stuff easier than men because um, Cameron. That Hart, is fascinating. I'm yeah, sorry. Keep I don't going. know. So I, it's just something that I noticed. Like if you ask, I don't know if you talk to men about like how much money do you make, they won't say anything. But if you talk to another woman, they'll, I don't know, they'll tell you. But um, like uh, Cameron Hurley uh, in The Geek Feminist Revolution she talks about her income all the time. I mean, she's still holding down a full-time job, even though she can make 40 grand a year off of her books, because it's kind of like, uh, you know, unstable and you never know. And so she's not there yet because of her health. She's not, you know, she has too many medical conditions, you know, considerations that giving up her day job is, you know, too scary for her to do right now. I mean, she'll probably be there in a few years, but, um, you never know what the outlook's going to be with healthcare changing. So, sure. you know, but it's one of those things where in that book and it's, you know, it sounds, it sounds strange to recommend a book for that specific reason because it's just part of it. And it's, yeah, it's geek feminism and the struggles that she had with publishers, but, um, and fans and everything else and proving herself and, um, but she, you know, she talks about money and just like Alex DeCampi, it's like, you know, people need to know this stuff and they need to, they need to know things like, well, what should you be getting? Because I've seen a, um, a couple Kickstarters this past week mm-hmm. that, you know, were, had all the right intentions. They were asking for a lot more money than I've seen comic Kickstarters ask for because they were trying to pay people. 
and they right. were failing. They weren't right. meeting. They weren't meeting their campaign goal. And it's like, it's just you know, it, I don't know what the secret there is. I don't know why. If you know, some, one campaign will be great, but another one won't. But it seems like if you ask for more than eight thousand dollars, you're not going to be funded. Yeah, I mean, I've I've toyed with the idea of doing a Kickstarter, and it just seems way too daunting for me. Um, there is one project with an artist that we've kind of casually talked about it. We haven't made any formal plans, and I'm still kind of weighing the options because it's like my problem with this stuff is that I don't know what to create as a reward. You know, I don't. I, I'm not an artist, so it's not like I can start sending sketches out to people. I mean, I could, but they'd be terrible. Um, (laughs) But it's like, what, what makes a good reward? And like, I think that that's one, I think you've got to do a a very well-made video. Like if the video is like you sitting in front of your computer in a dark room, uh, it's not, to me, it's not very attractive. Like I want to see some production value in a video, in a Kickstarter video. And that's going to cost you a few thousand dollars. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, even if you just get a proper microphone and some, you know, some decent lighting and like, edit it, you know, not, not too bad. I, I definitely would be able to do that myself. Um, but I just don't know about the rewards and I'm totally willing to do housing all the, I live in a, in a huge house in Vermont. We have an enormous basement. I, I could store 10,000 books in my large dry cement basement. So that doesn't worry me, but, and going to the post office doesn't worry me either because in Vermont, there's no bulletproof glass. There are no lines. Everybody's super friendly. And I love going to the post office. It's just, my town's kind of weird and magical like that. So that doesn't bother me. It's just, you know, raising enough money to pay my, my co-creator collaborator and factoring in enough if people back out or if cards get declined or whatever. Um, but it's like a full-time job. It's like a full-time job that I'm not really ready to take on. Yeah. That's what people have said, that it's definitely a full-time job. And I, I was gonna, I was like really excited and I wanted to do it. And then I started seeing my friends, um, stress and sure. stress and stress and they were like literally making themselves sick so that's when I when then Patreon came out and I was like okay well that's new let me see what the learning curve is there so I waited until like one of my other friends jumped on Patreon and he was like he was having success so I'm like okay this seems more my speed like it's basically a tip jar yeah. <laughs> you know I don't have to mail anything um, and you know, and it's, it's, there's been a couple of, you know, quirky things with the programming and and stuff like that. But um, it's a company that that grew quickly. And, um, you know, but there's, I've seen so many, so many people now, even the people with good book deals and stuff, still, Mm -hmm. still trying to make these, you know, tip jars. Oh, I mean, yeah, I was talking to friends all weekend and like some of them, you know, it's just you get an influx of work and you're kind of calculating, you know, how long can I ride this until I start to need to kind of worry about pitching new projects. And, you know, some people have a buffer of a year, it seems on average, if you're fairly successful and you've been able to quit your day job. But, you know, I I, I met a, a, a Marvel writer over the weekend and he was saying, telling me that like he had work and then suddenly in like over a span of like three weeks, he realized that he wasn't going to make it six months. And it's like things just change on a dime and, and you, you know, have to kind of figure out, you know, how to navigate that. And so for me personally, as much as I'd love to be a full-time writer, the reality is I think it would stress me out a lot to the point where I might, it be, might become counterproductive. Um, so I'm okay with having a day job, but I, and I think if if I have enough work coming in where it's like, oh, my God, I don't think I can do this, th- do both, then maybe. But, like, you know, Charles Soule is, like, this incredible example of a full-time lawyer yeah. who also writes all the books. and Tons of books. It's unbelievable. And he, just, and he just wrote a novel. So it's like, if he can do it, it's not impossible. I mean, you have to be extremely disciplined. And, obviously, it helps if there are other people wanting and needing stuff from you. Um, but, Yeah. It's, you know, I guess it just depends on the person. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, but but talking about things like the crowdfunding, uh, how how are you using social media 
to are you doing it like strictly personal are you kind of like using it for business and you know like we can talk about the biggies like twitter facebook and instagram um, or whatever. I don't know. Are you a Tumblr person? I hate Tumblr. Uh, I'm a Tumblr person, but in a passive way. Like I link basically my Instagram to okay. Tumblr, but I'll only po- I'll only post stuff on my Tumblr that are, is work related because I kind of look at it as because it's it's kind of in like the byline of my or the signature of my my emails. Um, I want to make sure it's current mm-hmm. because if people are like oh I'll just click on his website and it's and three years can, old. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've I've picked a, a a template and a format that doesn't show timestamps. Okay. Um, but I do make sure I, I post fairly regularly. So if someone happened to come across the website and they're like, "Oh, look! Oh, he's working on that. Oh, he's working on this." Um, but as far as Twitter uh, specifically, I don't I don't really use it the way I used it maybe five years ago. I've been pretty. I've taken a backseat to most of it. I've only recently in the last maybe six months been a bit more active. Um, but yeah, I'm just not that type of tweeter to be able to get stuff or drum up interest through Twitter, through, you know, clever tweets. Like I've got a couple friends that I, I love when they tweet cause it makes me laugh. They are hilarious and they're insightful and intriguing. And it's just like, I'm, I'm not that person. I, I can try to be, it's going to look really awkward and it's going to probably read even worse. So I don't try. I mean, I'm, you know, I'll just kind of keep communication open with friends and, and, you know, professional relationships and that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And your Instagram is like, you know, selfies and food. And... Yeah. I mean, a, a friend of mine saw me over the weekend. He's like, so your Instagram, I, I've deduced two things that you you write every day and then you drink a shit ton so <laughs> yeah but everything looks so good when you post them. <laughs> I'm, i think all of my captions are i want one <laughs> yeah and and it's like he's like you're just basically a functioning alcoholic i'm like yeah i, I guess i guess so yeah, functioning because uh, it's like you know i live in a small sleepy town when when i spend eight hours on the weekend like if i spend eight hours on a saturday writing for me to decompress, it's with a with a whiskey or bourbon, like that, or reading a book. Like those are things I I, I like to do. Um, and I was asking this with some people over the weekend. I was like, "What do you guys do? How do you decompress?" And they're like, "Yeah, drink." I mean, there's really no point in the go going out because like there's that weird transition period of spending all day writing, and I'm sure you you probably feel this where your brain is locked in, and when you get out of that chair, you need like it. Some people need a lot of time. Some people need a little time. But I need time to just decompress and let my brain kind of uh, reorient it itself to being normal and not thinking about characters and dialogue and I plot. Do. And I go and I sort of like zone out and put on something I've watched a billion times, like, you know, Bob's Burgers or something. Oh. Like I just I'm like, I just need something like whatever entertaining on so that my brain cannot necessarily think right now. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and it helps that I have like a, a home office, which is where I'm sitting right now. So like, you know, leaving a physical space and closing that door is very helpful for me. Um, see, mine's all in one room, but I do have it partitioned. Okay. Um, sort of like, if you imagine like just, I guess a studio ish kind of setup. So, um, yeah, but on nice days, I'm like you, I hit the porch. Yeah. When that's, you know, that's, even if I'm if I'm not finished writing yet, it'll be like, well, the cat wants to go out and I'll go sit outside for, you know, an hour. Sure. Um, so yeah, that's, um, although it's not so quiet here anymore. It sounds no? like I want to live where you live. It used, <laughs> it used to be exactly like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, where I live is basically kind of like stars hollow, except it's a bit smaller. Uh-huh. I mean, we have a gazebo in town. Everybody knows each other. Aww. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty great. Um, yeah, everybody. Yeah, I don't know. Everybody knows everybody's business here too, but I pretty much hate everybody. <laughs> I just I don't leave the like I don't really leave the house. I go on the porch. I'm like I want to you know especially in the summer like on Saturday or Sunday mornings, I'm like go on the, go on the back porch so that I'm not actually listening to the cars and sure. uh, just have my coffee out there with the cats or the dog or whatever and you know. And that's my quaintness. That's as as quaint as I really get anymore. Um, but I, uh, it's so weird because 
I, I'm like so attached to being at my, you know, my work environment here that, you know, when I talk to other people and they're talking about, oh, they take their, you know, first of all, I don't have a laptop, so it doesn't matter. When they're talking about mm-hmm. taking their laptops and going to coffee shops, I'm like, I would get nothing done. I used to do that. There was a coffee shop that I adore. These two guys, uh, Jim and Sam, that opened up an espresso bar in my town, which was very weird for the locals because it was very specific. It had a very clear vision or these two guys had a very clear vision of what they served, and it was like a very limited menu. Everybody called it the hipster coffee shop. I didn't really care for that distinction, but <laughs> eh, maybe it was. It was two guys, it was. <laughs> two, two guys with beards that sometimes wore flannel that made excellent coffee. So I would go there because there was no Wi-Fi. So I, I just had to sit with you know a blank document and write. And in fact, skip to the end, the comic, I wrote that entire thing in that coffee shop. I even credit them in the interior front cover as you know, writing fuel, cursive coffee. Um, but they were kind of pushed out by a really shitty landlord. And so I don't do that anymore. I mean, I, I used to love it. Um, and I can kind of write anywhere. Uh, but I've tended the last year I've been focusing on just being able to sit in my office and write when it's not, you know, when summer comes, my office gets way too hot and there's no air conditioning in here. So mm-hmm. I'll have to move elsewhere. But yeah, it's been Someone told me if you spend three to four weeks doing something routinely, it, it, it you can stick Comes to it. Habit, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. And so before I let you go, I have just a couple more things. So I was sure. wondering if you read reviews of your work. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't do it so much anymore, uh, mostly because I don't have that much stuff out. I mean, you know, Skip to the End came out in the fall, and and there's only uh, one one website reviewing it consistently um i'll give a shout out to rogues portal uh annalise was the reviewer she is lovely she wrote beautiful reviews um and she's a huge nirvana fan so that helped um but other than that not not so much okay and um you know like we were talking about you know mr ryan Lindsay and and the great work that he does so is there I know that you you like helping promote other people's work because you know when you when you find something that's remarkable out there you want to talk about it. So um, you know at least even though like you're not on Twitter you're not living on Twitter, um, you know you retweet people's stuff and and um, I was wondering if there's anything that was kind of on your radar stuff that you want people to maybe pay attention to. That's a great question. Um... I was bringing it up because you were at Emerald City and I was not. And I so I saw the the Image Comics announcement with all the new stuff that they have coming out. Yeah. Some, some of it sounded like really intriguing, like Moonstruck and Family Tree. Family Tree sounded great. Um, and uh, Vanessa Del Rey and Jordi Belair's project, um, blanking, I think it's called Redlands. Uh, that looks great. I'm a huge fan of both of them. Um, but I actually tabled with... Uh, the editor-in-chief of Vault Comics, which is a new publisher that kind of made their splash announcement last summer, I think. Um, super great guy. Super cool operation. It helps that my co-writer on Skin, Tim Daniel, is kind of their in-house production guy. Um, I trust him with my life creatively. And so it was really great to hang out with them <clears throat> and see the books that they're doing and that they you know, have a clear vision for the future they have the infrastructure. They have the passion. Um, so, yeah, I would say everybody should really check out Vault Comics in, in the coming year. I think they have 12 titles slated for 2017, which is amazing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, um, I got to say, uh, whatever comes out this year from Teeny Howard and Donny Cates, uh Got to spend a considerable amount of time with them over the weekend. They're just fun to be around. Um, really excited about all their big projects that are in the works. Um, Donnie's kind of just blowing up at, at Image. He's got God Country through Image Central, and he's got Redneck through Skybound, which it's just like, damn it, I wish I'd thought of that. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm a big fan of Skeptics. I believe that was one of the Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. Um, Love that book. Oh, I would also say uh, The Dregs through Black Mask. Uh, and mostly anything from Black Mask in general. Um, Black Mask is really, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. The dregs was grossing me out. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I got, I, you know, I had the preview and I'm like, okay, I don't think this is for me, but wow, it looks beautiful, but still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great book. I, I, Lonnie and, and Zach, the writers and, and Eric, the artist, uh, 
gave me an advanced preview of it late last year, and I just was like, this is fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah, Black Mask is wonderful. Yes. Um, and four kids walk into a bank and stuff like that. I mean, they're just doing really, really cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, Matt Rosenberg is great. Um, he actually wrote the, the foreword for the Skip to the End trade that will hopefully come out some at some point. Um, but, uh, yeah. Very cool. Um, let's see. Besides the image stuff, I know that there's a couple Kickstarters. Um, well, Femme Magnifique actually yep. did reach its goal. So awesome. that's pretty awesome. But uh, my friends um, are running their own Kickstarter for The Golden Guard, which is um, very Kirby Golden Age. Um so hopefully people will go check that out. So I don't I don't know the date though on when that's wrapping up, but that's on Kickstarter, and uh, so I keep sharing the links to that. Nice. Um, I would I would also give a shout out to uh, a new guy, Jake Smith. He's got this comic called This Offbeat Town. Uh, he comes from my alma alma mater. He's a SCAD grad, um, but he's just amazing his stuff he's got so much potential he's going to have a very very long career in comics um but i backed his first the first issue of his comic he's he's got a kickstarter i think it might have i know it got funded i think it might actually be over now but it's issues two three and four for the comic but everybody should check his art he's gonna be a big name pretty soon i think that sounds good and um where can people follow you uh, for for your announcements and stuff like that um twitter uh it's at jeremy underscore holt um and uh yeah that's kind of it i mean if you go to my website uh clump of um i post pretty regularly there but uh mostly twitter mostly twitter yeah cool and um you're you know definitely always on my list of, of people to look out for and see what your projects are and what's coming up. So, um, could you, I forget, did you say the name of the publisher that's doing the book? Um, the novel? The, yeah. Uh, that hasn't actually been placed yet. Um, okay. so I'm still working on it, but I'm about two thirds of the way through. Um, yeah, my agent gave me the option of like, because he, he does represent a lot of comic book writers. He's like, I, I do know a few publishers where I could, submit the partial manuscript, but there's only a very small amount that I could do that with. Um, mm -hmm. But if you finish it and you get a draft done, then, you know, there's obviously many more options. So I've decided to just power through and get it done. I'm, I'm maybe 30,000 words from the end, and uh, I'm hoping to have a draft done by the end of April. So Okay, cool. Well, I look forward to those announcements. And, um, of course, we'll be in touch. And so then when anything else comes up, you know, open invitation on this show because I know you uh, you had to squeeze in time trying to do your own shows and stuff. For a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But I really appreciate it. I always like being on here. So. Um, great. Well, you guys can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber, which has been a very political of late, but I do talk about comics and books as often as I possibly can. Um, Instagram for me is Amber Unmasked. Yes, it's different. My name is different on like every single platform because it's too hard to get. So, <laughs> um, but support the show and my work at patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked and backers always get announcements and exclusives and things like that first. And um, everything else is at Amber Unmasked, including a lot of these great press releases when I hear about, you know, new projects coming out. They'll, they'll just be straight up on the website at Amber Unmasked. So, Jeremy, thank you so much as always. Thank you. Thank you.